0: hi i'm jeremy lent i'm an author and integrator and i'm author of the patterning instinct and an upcoming book called the web of meaning integrating science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe and today on the show we're going to be talking about some of the ways in which our modern civilization is destroying the well-being of humans and the whole natural world and how we can get off this hedonic treadmill that is driving us on. And we're gonna look at some of the deeper questions of consciousness, meaning, and the things that really connect us with what is truly meaningful in life.
1: Welcome back. This is part three of my fabulous interview with Jeremy Lentz, fascinating human being, His book, The Patterning Instinct, which came out in 2017, is a cultural history of humanity, looking at the different ways society has constructed meaning about the universe. His upcoming book is The Web of Meaning, integrating science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe. It's uh, a fascinating conversation. If you're back for part three, You know that already. We're going to examine a lot more, but I want to just let you know that this episode of Curiosity Brights is brought to you in part by MagCast. Mag, M-A-G, cast. Uh, Imagine having your own industry magazine. What would that do for your authority? Well, whether you're a coach, a content expert, an emerging brand, it's hard to stand out from the crowd. So what if there was a proven way to increase both your perceived authority and a professional status in the eyes of your market, and to do it all at once. This is your way to go from being invisible to getting meetings with anyone. To find out more, go to magcast.co. That's M-A-G-C-A-S-T dot C-O. Where first-time publishers create thriving magazine businesses. Magcast.co. And by the way, you can also join in our conversations on Facebook. We have a Curiosity Bytes group right there. All right, let's get back into it with the fabulous Jeremy Lent, and uh, let, let's, I want to ask you a question that I wanted to ask you since we spoke. Do you remember, I think it was 78, so it might have been just before you left, Um, James Burke's connection? I do, actually, yes. Yeah, connections, because when I first, ta- when I first talked to you and you talked about all the patterns of things, I thought, oh my god, that so reminds me of yeah. James Burke's connections which a lot of people won't know uh, I know it did come out on BBC America um, but it was James Burke who was this fabulous historian who was able to show the connections between random things that we didn't think were connected from one thing to the next and he showed, sort of showed how the the you know the iron that you iron your clothes was related to the Gutenberg press and mm-hmm. all these obscure ways of connecting things and and it really reminded me of this whole thing you have around patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that, that Burke was some kind of inspiration? Some little seed was popped into yeah. your coconut as a
0: kid? You know, I think that's probably true, uh, to be honest. I remember being absolutely intrigued by uh, ex- exactly how you described, how he would just show how one thing related to each other. <clears throat> and... Um, i i think that probably did set in me this con, this way of realizing that there's different ways to make sense of things than our our culture usually leads us to um, but then even something like uh, that brilliant series that it was still had certain sort of limitations because it kind of just stayed with the cognitive if you will it was like yep. an intellectual exercise it was a little bit like playing a really cool Crossword puzzle or something like yep. oh how does this relate to that and then you 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 frame it yep. just there um, and I think you know what so I I think what I've found in um, the recent part of my life since I sort of went through my own sense of meaning making is to find ways in which that connects going down from the mind to the rest of the body and um, going from, so that the mind and body also are deeply connected. And then from that, through our bodies, realizing how connected we are with all of life. And that's where, um, in a way, I mentioned this um, this concept by this um, Buddhist teacher, um, Thich Nhat Hanh, which is about interbeing, which is very similar to the James Burke episodes you, you just described, what what Thich Nhat Han often likes, what he's like to do is he'll take out a piece of paper and he'll say, see this paper, this paper contains the entire universe. And then people say, "Well, what? What do you mean?" You say, "Well, um, without the, the, this paper contains the sun because the sun had to shine in order to give the trees the um, sustenance in order to." actually, you know, make their bark, that turn it into paper. And it contains the earth because the trees needed the the nutrients of the earth in order order to do that. And it contains the air. And so so each way, step by step, and it contains the people um, who then had to sort of cultivate the tree and bring it to you and all that stuff, Um, which I find to be an incredibly profound idea. But then what I've begun to realize, and this kind of leads to perhaps where where we we can explore in the next hour, it also contains other things um, in terms of our society. Um, So, for example, uh, and some of the destructive things. So it can, for example, contain the monocropping of these big big ag uh, companies that destroy the richness, abundance of the forest in order to make these uh, sort of standardized um, uh, sort of tree or t- tree, uh, tree plantations to get mm-hmm. that paper. Or it contain, um the incredible inequities where people lose their land to those big people and then um, have to work for starvation <coughs> wages in the paper mills to get it to you or the globalization that causes all the carbon emissions. So you can sort of buy uh, this incredible ream of paper for 69 cents or whatever, or, mm-hmm. or just a couple of dollars at the store. So all the different layers Um, Both the good and the beauty and the destructiveness are all contained in that one piece of paper or in any one other, anything that you want to look at. So I do think that's an incredible, profound way to look at things, but it helps to move from the sort of crossword puzzle nature of it to the ethical implications and the more spiritual implications.
1: Well, I have a, I have a, a, a philosophy in my own life. The, the material world is a laser focused world. And what I mean by that is we've set our mind on a goal. Um, and that goal could be meaning, right? But we set our, our, our mind on a goal, million dollars, hot partner, whatever it is, right? And, and everything else becomes um, really no meaning. We, we, we dismiss the meaning of everything in order to go after and pursue this goal. We, we dismiss it and we, we, we've laser focus and then we get it and we realize, okay, I got it. Now what? And so we set our sights on another, set our laser on another target and we go after that and we, everything else becomes again, extraneous to, to that target. Or we move into microscopic focus as opposed to laser focused and in the microscopic focus we find the universe in the infinitesimally small everything is expanded and beyond the surface of what it is and so it goes from being the the rational logical connections between things but to the deeper understanding of the connection between things And this takes us into a whole different realm, which I wasn't going to go here now, but we will, which is the expansion of the way that I have researched in my own journey into the concept of consciousness and how ridiculous that is in the context of the way that we see it, that we are the conscious beings. And and I get that we've, you know, people have become vegans and they've gotten a little more uh, conceptual about that. I'm not a vegan, so it's not that I'm saying that at all. Um, but you know, that we, we, we think cons- consciousness is related to us and there's a wonderful piece. I'm trying to remember who it was by where he explains consciousness in the context of a dog and you go, well, is a dog conscious? And a lot of people would say no and you say, well, how do you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they, they don't reason the way that we do. Do you know that? No, not for sure. Do dogs dream? Yeah. Well, what do they dream about if they're unconscious? Oh, okay. Well, you know, you can see that dogs haven't dream, right? So, and and it's this, and then taking it beyond that into the infinitesimally small. And, and I would expand into people and say, what if the what if there is, uh, as James, uh, oh no, I had just had a, a some cranial flatulence, there neurological flatulence, um, uh, the universe in a grain of sand. Who's that?
0: Oh, William Blake.
1: William Blake. Thank you. I said, I was going to say James Blake, William Blake. Mm-hmm. Um, that what if there is consciousness in a grain of sand mm-hmm. I, in the thing that we think of as inanimate, in other words, the thing that we think of as, you know, okay, possibly the, the dog has consciousness because it has a brain. So is a, is the brain, the consciousness, or is the brain a piece of meat? Mm-hmm. Uh, does my consciousness disappear with the brain? Uh, and if it doesn't, then do I need a brain to have consciousness? And therefore, can a grain of sand have consciousness? And it's this deeper, greater dive into the idea that consciousness is not us, but that we are swimming in consciousness and we are tapping into consciousness and expressing it through us. And it is our ability to express it that allows us to perceive it as consciousness. Mm-hmm. But we don't understand the expression of it in other forms. Mm-hmm. I'd love to have your input on that because yeah. that's consciousness and mm-hmm. meaning. <laughs>
0: and again, well, probably you know, it's was just on that one it, it, exactly. <laughs> and in fact, um, a large, uh, big sections of my upcoming book, "The Web of Meaning," goes in really interesting directions in on exactly this question. So um, I, I'm I'm so so glad you asked it and. Um, I mean, there's many ways to sort of come at these big questions you raise. My own sense is, there are most definitely some people who believe that it's possible to understand that all the universe is, there's a layer of consciousness in all the universe, Mm -hmm. even inanimate objects. And in fact, um, that's not just a mystical thing. Um, There's actually some neuroscientists who believe that consciousness Uh, actually needs to be understood as a function of integration. And according to their logic, there's a person called Giulio Tononi who actually has what he calls an integrated information theory of consciousness, where if you take the logic, it says that there is some tiny level of consciousness, even in inanimate things. So that's interesting. But to me, what is most interesting is the the jump in that layer of whatever you want to call it, consciousness or whatever, when life begins. And uh, that, to me, is this kind of sacred, this incredible, maybe the most important uh, sort of distinction in the universe, is this, this moment billions, about four billion years ago on Earth, and most likely in other places in the universe, but we don't know about them. But so the only one we know of is here on Earth, where mm-hmm. that um, inanimate world suddenly became self-organized and started to create itself. Mm-hmm. And really, for now, four billion years, it's this process it was actually is actually called by some uh, biologists autopoiesis, which means self-generation or self-becoming, mm-hmm. and and that is really a definition of what life is. And what's key is that they, there is really um, no essential distinction between that and consciousness, because when um, a sort of a pre-living entity begins to be start to have life like billions of years ago what the, what it needs to do right away is have a some sort of separation of itself as a, it creates a membrane and then it has to bring energy in from outside in order to metabolize it and make more of itself and it has a purpose which is to stay alive and to make more of itself and from an evolutionary point of view that makes sense those little um what are called at- autocatalytic molecules that didn't have that purpose just stayed inert. The ones that did um, then r- r- did succeed, some of them, in regenerating themselves and then they began to sort of essentially take over the earth. And that's the story of life. And if you actually look, this is one of the things that modern science has discovered that turns over completely this uh, old-fashioned scientific notion that consciousness is in our human brain like from Descartes we live mm-hmm. in a essentially a Cartesian world like a, yep. a philosophy where people I think just take, I people am. take for granted says I think therefore I am exactly so from that idea and he was just restating stuff that got said by the ancient Greeks I mean of so it's a, it's a much older tradition but the mm. notion is that our thinking is what makes humans separate from the rest of the of the natural world. And that's what our actual identity is. That's also what our soul is. That's what connects us with God, with, so our reason is divine, is godly. And by that same distinction, the rest of nature, like that dog you were talking about, doesn't think in the way we do, you can't do math problems, therefore has no divinity, has no um, soul, and right. has no intrinsic worth, and doesn't really exist. And in fact, Descartes himself was one of the ones who propagated this idea that nature is just machine. So he would actually take a dog, put it up on a board, and, and do vivisection. And dogs would be howling in agony, and people would say, "Isn't that bad?" He said, "No, no, don't worry. They don't really have feelings. It's just like if I hit a if I hit a violin string and I hear a sound. They they're just having these instinctual reactions that doesn't mean anything. So, and that is the way of thinking about the separation between humans and the natural world that has led to a lot of the destructive behavior our civilization is doing right now. But what modern science has shown is that even if you look at a single cell, tiny microscopic cell, that cell has this incredible, what I call animate intelligence. And mm-hmm. um, It doesn't, of course it doesn't think like we do. It doesn't sort of um, make plans and write things down. And um, you could argue that whatever consciousness is there is certainly um, orders of degree different from the consciousness we have. I'm not trying to say that it sort of has feelings like we do, but it has a self-organized, um, animate intelligence. It knows what it wants. It actually, the complexity of the single cell is so mind-blowing that even our best supercomputers can't actually, and even now, begin to replicate what it does because it does these amazing trillions of movements all happening at the same time, creating um, things from its DNA and intersecting, relating through about a thousand portals in its membrane with things out there, figuring out what it needs, creating them, and, and a million times a second. All the stuff happens in one cell, and then you just expand out. It, it turns out that plants have about 13 different senses way more than we do. They have senses like that are analogs of our visual and hearing sense Mm -hmm. and all other kinds of senses of mineral senses, what and gravity senses and all these kinds of things. Um, And every single um, creature out there in the world has intelligence, deep intelligence. In fact, intelligence that's far beyond our reasoning intelligence. Really our reason, what Descartes thought as our whole existence is a little bit like the superficial sort of icing on the cake. This, this, or another way of thinking about it is like an iceberg. And we can think of yep. our reason as this glistening white um, stuff that we see above the ocean. What we don't realize is that 80 to 90% is actually below, hidden in this deep dark yeah. mystery.
1: Yeah, it it, it is indeed fascinating uh, uh, level of arrogance around intelligence um my my belief and it's really interesting again because i'm interested to hear where you come from my belief is and i've said this for as long as i can remember that descartes was wrong i think therefore i am and i would more likely say if the in the context of meaning i feel therefore i am much more than i think therefore i am um it is the feelings that generate the thoughts and the thoughts generate the feelings. It is a loop. So it is the feelings that, so if I feel therefore I am, and therefore if the dog cries, then the dog is right. If the, if the animal suffers and feels therefore it is. And then, and, and again, I'm not saying, I don't believe that that's the ultimate truth, but it allows us to expand out Mm -hmm. because but then we go to well we didn't think dogs felt and we don't think stones feel mm-hmm. um and that's why i love mythologies um cuz you know you see the ent which is the tree that walks you know mm-hmm. in in lord of the rings or in in uh, the hobbit and you see you know in these mythologies you see these inanimate Uh, things that suddenly have a consciousness to them. And I think that a lot of times those myths speak to us uh, in a way that allow us to consider a deeper, a deeper concept of life, a deeper meaning of life beyond the consumer driven hive mind of purchase, you know, so it, it... I really appreciate you going there with that. And certainly wasn't where I planned to go with this section, but I'm really glad we did because it kind of even brings us into where I wanted to go, which is the, this, um, really the, the, the controlling of the public mind, the, 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 the vast mind, the hive mind of consumerism um, and, and that was actually brought into you've written about it, and I, I love what you wrote about it. You know, uh, Edward Bernays, who was uh, Sigmund Freud's nephew, and talked about uh, I think his quote was something like, We must shift America from needs uh, to de- to a desire culture, and how he manipulated uh, consumerism, and it's actually been used in politics and all kinds of things. And it is the first. Major exercise in persuasion technology um, that has turned us outward as opposed to inward. I know you've written a lot about it, so walk walk us through a little bit of that and your understanding of how we've maybe potentially lost our way and yeah. become this consumer-driven world that really is self-destructive.
0: Yes, <clears throat> I think that that is something that is again difficult to see sometimes when we are so bombarded with um, messages in the media nonstop that tell us that the way to happiness is through more consumption and that it's just natural to consume and that's what human beings just naturally want and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. it's actually quite disturbing to discover That back in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and and as you say, Edward Bernays was one of the absolute trailblazers in this regard. Mm -hmm. There was this cynical uh, ambition, this strategy of people to actually discover, to take what was being discovered about human deep psychology and manipulate it just Mm -hmm. to make money, even at the expense of the well-being of people. Yep. And that's what we need to recognize, is that the culture we live in is not designed for human optimization. It's designed for the profit optimization of corporations, at the, even at the expense of humans. And it's not that, that, that everything they do has to be bad for humans. But what is good or bad for us as humans, what's good or bad for life on Earth, is irrelevant. And, I mean, you were talking before about this kind of notion of laser-like um, focus. I mean if there's the absolute um the the sort of paragon of laser-like focus is the corporation yep. which is actually established it has a legal drive to um optimize for nothing other than shareholder profit and yep. in fact if if you have a CEO of a corporation who feels like he's got um you know, compassion and caring and wants to uh, do good and recognizes that, and he actually tries to make decisions that don't maximize the shareholder value because he's trying to do something that's good at the expense of that, he'll face lawsuits, he'll lose his position, the board will face lawsuits. They know that. And so mm-hmm. that's, that, that is not allowed to compromise what a corporation does. What's so ironic is corporations here in the United States have managed to be Uh, viewed legally as persons but if they were actually persons they would be psychopaths because a psychopath is really uh, by definition a, a human being who has gotten rid of all these other complexities around morality and around what you feel about other people and who's taken your point of having a single goal to the extreme where the only only thing that psychopath is wants to focus on is that goal and he or she will do anything necessary to manipulate things around to achieve that goal that's what corporations do and the Bernays stuff this kind of mind control that Mm -hmm. has been developed is their primary way in which they use the incredible technologies they've developed the incredible technologies of the mind they understand to manipulate our core drives against our better interests. So if you look back evolutionarily, as human beings, we evolved drives that were intrinsically healthy. We involved a drive to um, want to be attracted to, say, um, fats in our food or sugars in our foods, because uh, when we're a nomadic hunter-gatherer, that was a rare thing. And it was really good to kind of gorge in it when you had the opportunity um, and to be attracted to it. But equally importantly, as humans, we evolved um, the need to be part of that group identity that we were talking about before. And uh, when humans were nomadic hunter gatherers in bands, um, being part of the group was essential to survival. So we evolved what are called moral emotions, the, which involve, which allow us to be part of that group, to want to have status within the group of our uh, 30 or 50 people around us, to be respected. We want to, um, if we do something wrong, we 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 feel shamed by it. Um, all these things we, and uh, we are driven to care about what the rest of the group feels about us, because mm-hmm. we want to be successful in that group. Now, that's a great healthy thing. That's what led to humans uh, success on this earth. But what these corporations have done is taken those very things those physical drives um, and manipulate them to cause us to reach for the food that actually um, makes money for the corporation, but actually hurts our own bodies and even more insidiously to take those emotional drives and use them against ourselves. So um, this whole notion with social media, like um, in Facebook success and other social media, this concept of FOMO or fear of missing out, um, there's actually um, labs, sophisticated uh, uh, psychological labs designed in the the Bay Area where these Bernays type People have developed things to such a level of sophistication that they actually design the technology to manipulate our hormones
1: so that dopamine um, release thumbs up signs all these things
0: exactly they and and they design it just so that we'll get enough dopamine release so we'll feel good temporarily but not so much that we continue to feel good so within a few minutes it's gone and then we kind of driven oh I, w- I want that feeling again let me go back and see if there's been more likes to my thing and then a ding comes up and and you go like oh i can't miss that i that fear of missing out supposing that's a ding that tells me i get another like or the um, and so they're designed to pull us into this um place of this attention suction and they're doing that because of course they are only they're going to make their money through advertising which requires um, us to be on that screen and in that mode maximum amount of time and that's something that we see all around us in everything you turn on the tv you don't and um, maybe 30 40 years ago you would turn on a tv and you'd have this quiet background screen and you'd have an announcer um, just quietly saying we're doing this you turn on the tv now and there's all these noises shoo, shoo, you know, like lights coming on. And you, we're so inured to it, we don't even realize, and unless you might mute the TV and suddenly notice that all this stuff is going on. Um, everything is designed to make, keep our attention and keep us away from that stillness and that sense that it could allow us to start to pursue that um, eudaimonia we talked about instead of hedonia. And so all of these constructions are basically not there. To try to make us feel better as human beings, but to make us feel worse as human beings, so we then need to spend the money or spend the time to then temporarily feel a little bit better again,
1: yeah. Uh, one of the things that I tell the leaders that I work with is, you know you know you you keep hearing all this stuff around empathy and compassion, and you're trying to do it mm-hmm. and And I understand that. Um, that you're trying to be a better human. Um, I understand that you, you know, you want to be more empathetic. But let me just teach you the simplest way to have empathy. And they go, okay, what is it? I want you to remember that everybody, everybody, from the Dalai Lama to Adolf Hitler, everybody is simply trying to feel better. Mm -hmm. That's it. If you can get to that understanding that everybody's trying to feel better. When you see that person ignoring their kid and they're on their phone, they're trying to feel better. Mm -hmm. When you see the kid stomping their feet on the floor in the supermarket, they're trying to feel better. When you see the heroin addict in the street, they're trying to feel better. Mm -hmm. When you see the the dick who is like treating people so poorly as he gets in his Rolls Royce, he's trying to feel better. And it's the great equalizer of understanding and compassion and empathy is everybody's trying to feel better. I'll be honest. I designed this show. I have two podcasts, Leadership and Loyalty. It's very successful, Leadership and Loyalty. And people said to me, why the hell would you create a second podcast? You spend way too much time doing the other one. I do. Why did I do this one? Because I want to feel better. That's why I did this one. I want to feel better. I love, 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 love these conversations. They're delicious. They feed my soul. It's my way to feel better. I recognize that it's not other people's. They'd rather watch some Pornhub, or they'd rather, you know, go on Netflix, or or they'd rather, you know, watch some violent movie or whatever. That's great, but I was a kid who watched James Burke. I was a kid who was. Watch documentaries on BBC Two and watch Shakespeare on BBC Two. When my mates were watching cartoons, I was watching that. I have that hunger, that curiosity, and I, like everybody else, I'm trying to feel better. And the way for us to understand that is that these guys that you're talking about have designed systems to make you feel better, but very briefly, to make you feel better for a second when that notification comes up. And, and by the way, I highly recommend that you go and watch the documentary, uh, The Social Dilemma. The
0: Social Dilemma. If you haven't
1: seen it, it's absolutely brilliant. It's a documentary about exactly what we've spoken about. And the people featured in the documentary, excuse me, are the people who designed these things, mm-hmm. who are talking out against it and they're saying that they never let their kids near it. So mm-hmm. it's a really important thing to, that's the level of compassion. That's a unification piece that we can have that will give us is to say, this person seems like a dick or they're behaving really badly or they're really rude or whatever it is. They're trying to feel better. Right. From what I don't know. I have no idea. I have my own subjective reality. You have yours. I don't know what you're trying to feel better from, but if I can come at it from that, right. I can have a little more kindness with you. And I can also have a little more kindness with myself because sometimes I behave in a way that I don't like. And I can go, all right, was I doing that because I'm an ass? It was certainly assy, but is it because I'm an ass? No, mm-hmm. some part of me thought that that would make me feel better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Probably didn't in the long term, but in the short term, maybe made me feel powerful or better than. Now, because of my moral consciousness, I go, now I feel like, douchey but that's a really important piece isn't it that understanding around meaning is actually around feeling better i think sometimes you've got to feel worse to feel better so you've got to feel bad coming off the drug even if the drug is likes on facebook
0: yeah i i think what you're saying is so so profound and i just couldn't agree more uh strongly with this whole concept of that's the equalizing thing of all human beings Um, and that is what this this whole corporate machine takes advantage of it's it's actually um, sometimes called the hedonic treadmill precisely because once you step on that hedonic treadmill it's ongoing you feel actually it's actually designed to feel you better temporarily to make you feel better but to make you feel worse overall so that then you need it again and again just like a drug um, an addictive drug. And to your point, this is um this is like a sort of new discovery and one of the greatest, most ancient discoveries of all. Like if you look at um the Buddhist foundations and the absolute underlying foundation of all of what Buddhism is about, there's this concept of dukkha, um, and which is um, pronounced which is kind of um translated simply as suffering, but mm-hmm. is so much more than suffering. It's basically yes. Duker is describing exactly what you you're what you're describing. It's this notion of unease that comes with basically being human beings and wanting things to be different. And All the different ways in which we might be uncomfortable about how we are socially or wanting more or having a desire for something in the future, then you get it. And then you have the fear that you might lose it or the desire for the next thing on that hedonic treadmill. And all that is dukkha. And we can actually, in fact, a section of my book, The Web of Meaning, coming out next year, actually talks about the the corporate strategy uh, towards uh, human beings on this earth as being like the dukkha machine. It's mm-hmm. like the it's a machine that actually looks at that human, uh, this core underlying human experience of dukkha and then takes advantage of it, tries to maintain that dukkha as much as possible so it can then temporarily reprieve it and make money from that. And I think what we as a society need, um, what each of us as human individuals need for our own fulfillment is to recognize that and get off that hedonic treadmill. Um, And like you say, jumping off it, especially if it's going fast, (laughs) you can kind of hurt yourself. So it takes, I I think what is optimal is to um, really treat, uh, find a path that takes you off it kind of more kindly and gradually, where you can actually begin to develop those skills. So as you come off it, you're not sort of going cold turkey, um, but you're actually Uh, withdrawing gently from it and replacing it with things that once you do replace it feel so much better Mm -hmm. that you get to a point where you realize I would never want to go back into that uh, that hideous treadmill again
1: yeah Uh, we're coming to the end we've come to the end of this section and and I want to remind you the listener of of something you've heard me say on, on other episodes of this um that to remember that human beings are addicts we are designed to be addicted uh, biologically neurologically now some of us have more socially unacceptable addictions uh, by being drunk in the street or whatever it might be but we've all got our addictions and that's because we're all trying to feel better and you can have a lot more empathy and a lot more compassion for people if you understand that you're also an addict your addiction might be volunteering at church, and everybody applauds that and goes, Oh, what a wonderful person you are. But your addiction is still your addiction. We've all got that. And that level of compassion of coming back and saying, everybody's trying to feel better. We're all doing it in ways that are either socially acceptable or socially unacceptable. And to understand that if you are addicted, how about changing the addiction? So one of one of the strategies, because I was a therapist, um, is one of the strategies is to recognize I'm an addict. So break my addictions every day. What are my addictions? Everything you do habitually is an addiction. So brush your teeth with your left hand if you're right-handed, right? Put your right sock on first if you normally put your left sock on. Every time you do that, there is a hit, and there is a hit of cortisol, which is a stress hormone. Because it's stressful to do things differently that's why we like things the same and at the same time when you complete it there is a dopamine hit having completed and that can become really quite stimulating for you as a human being and you can get addicted to change instead of resistant to change and that can keep you empathetic compassionate and growing so we're at the end of part three this fabulous interview with jeremy lent i'm loving this We're going to come back with part four in a little while. I hope you will stay with us, and I hope that you will stay curious, my friend. Stay curious and come back for part four of my conversation with the man who has really found pattern and meaning in the universe and brought it to us so that we can expand our own consciousness and how we can be in the world. We'll come back in just a while. Stay with us and stay curious, my friend. Stay curious.